not proud that that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from power Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. You may know me from my blog, Unpickled. That's where I've been writing about life after alcohol since my very first day of sobriety in 2011. I tell my story there, and I invite you to share your stories here. And as you may have noticed, it's been a whole month since my last episode I, I I lost a month. Uh, you know, we have blackouts sometimes in our drinking lives. It turns out you can have blackouts in sobriety, apparently. I was having the most wonderful time at the lake, and I had a meet-up with some friends from high school who I hadn't seen in decades, and sadly, a funeral to attend, and I was just busy, 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 and all of a sudden, I looked at my calendar and went, oh my goodness, It's been a whole month since I got to talk to someone uh, for the bubble hour. So I'm back on it, guys. I'm back, and I've been missing you, and I've been missing the wonder of sharing bubble hour stories. So sometimes I feel like when we listen to other people um, on podcasts or read their blogs, it seems like they have a lot more opportunities to connect with people than it feels like when we're at home looking after our own recovery. And I certainly felt that way. I was felt like I was the loneliest person in the world for the first six months of my recovery. And just by chance at a conference, uh, a speaker mentioned he was sober. And I mustered up my courage afterwards and went up to him and sort of meekly squeaked out that I was also sober and I had just celebrated six months. And this stranger, this sort of half-Canadian celebrity, came running at me and hugged me and was like, that's so awesome and was just so sweet. And I was like, okay, I get it. I get why we need to find other sober people now. And so I kind of threw my heart open to the universe and said, send me some sober friends. I don't know how I'm going to get them. I don't know how I'm going to find them, but I need some sober friends. And I live in Alberta, Canada, which can be pretty isolating, and I just didn't know how I was going to find them. Well, guess what? It turned out my dog groomer was sober. I noticed that when I picked my dog up and saw some books on her bookshelf that tipped me off that she was sober. It turned out, like, the coolest girl in my book club who's covered with tattoos and, and um you know, has the funky bangs and the funky glasses. Turns out she was eight years sober. And in fact, there were sober people all around me. And I started making friends. And I started going to meetups and uh, intentionally going and seeking out sober friends. And so that is how things unfolded for me. Now, I also get a lot of emails from readers and listeners. And I try to hang on to them and follow up after a while and see how they're doing. And, and, um, I got this really touching email, and I hung on to it for a while. I, we wrote back and forth, and then it kind of disappeared. And after a while, I was like, you know what? I really need to find that girl. I want to touch, circle back with her and see how she is and see if we can connect again. And I couldn't find it. And it was really bugging me, and I was going through all my old emails trying to find this amazing contact, and I couldn't find her. And I thought, what the heck? Anyway, long story short... 
this May, I was at a yoga retreat, and uh, my friend Dawn said, oh, I want you to meet Erin. She's a, a sober blogger, and I was really excited to meet her because I knew she was doing some amazing work. And she, this adorable girl with a perky brown ponytail and the biggest roundest eyes and the cutest freckles on her nose, sat up in her chair and said, oh, I emailed you a while back and we started talking and I was like, oh my God, you're the girl I've been looking for. So man, when you open up to what is out there for you, the universe delivers in spades. And so, um, yeah, it's just amazing to me how Aaron and I were connected and then lost that connection and then actually met in person. And um, not only was that cool, but I just had an an instant crush on this girl because she's just funny and smart. And she's one of those girls that can drop an F-bomb and not make you blink. Like she makes it cute, whereas I make it not cute. And anyway, I just love her. And I knew you'd love her too. And so I wanted to have her on and have her share a bit of her writing and a bit of her story. And I just wanted to, I guess have you hear our connection as well so that anyone out there that's feeling lonely and wishing for friends could get a glimpse of what is available to you when you just sort of proactively go out there and start looking for what's waiting for you. So Erin, after after all that chatting, I have you on the line. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hi, I'm so (laughs) glad that you're here. Oh my gosh, Gina, I'm so excited to be here. It has been years, years of me listening to you on the bubble hour and reading the reading Unpickled and just crushing on you from afar too. So it is so great to be here. I have goosebumps all over right now. Oh, uh, so cool. It is so cool. And it, I mean, it's weird to me that anybody reads my blogs or listens to this podcast. Honestly, it is. I do these things alone at my computer. And like I said, you feel like the loneliest person in the world. And it takes like a, a leap of faith to sort of cross into the real world and go meet people and put yourself out there in person. And um, and you, I think you felt that as well um, because you started out kind of writing and being relatively isolated, and um, and now you're in the in the land of real people and real friends and real connections. And I'm never going to leave it. <laughs> I am. I am. I am just securing my spot and nestling in. And I'm not. I have no plans to to ever go away again. That Aww. was. That was absolutely what was. You know, missing from my story for way too many years is I was really wanting to play it small, play it quiet, and just you know get things under control um, in a pretty invisible way. And. Okay. What I found after much, much effort is that that is not an approach that works, and that's not what um, that's not what I need, and that's not what other women need, and that we just need each other, and that is becoming sort of a a mission for me is to connect uh, women and in a way that is positive and um, meaningful. You know, in some ways, it's my hope that the bubble hour is a little bit of a gateway drug that. My experience in listening to it um, before I was part of this show was that I was just like eavesdropping on Ellie and Amanda and Lisa talking about their lives, and and I was feeling the feeling of having sober friends and of hearing stories and 
hearing my own story kind of echoed back to me, and it's it helped me believe that there were other people out there like me when my addiction, you know, kept lying to me and telling me that wasn't true. And um, um, I think we're on the same mission, is that like in wanting to tell women in particular, I know we have men, men listeners too, male listeners, hi guys, I think there's about five of you, but we love you and we value you. But I think men recover a little bit differently and that um, they, they're a little bit more like plan focused and women are very much connection focused and healing collectively. And so my hope is that um, this hearing, hearing these voices gives women the courage they need to go out there and find real relationships. I'm talking way too much um, when I'm supposed to be interviewing you, so let me shift gears and get back into um, my proper routine, which is on top of welcoming you to the show. I want to ask you to tell us a little bit about yourself. And Being a writer, I know that you're um, choosing to um, share your story through both your spoken words and in sharing some of your written words as well. Yes, well, I, I just want to echo again what you said, because Dorothy Day is one of my all-time favorite um, feminists and, and activists. She was a, um, she started the Catholic Worker Program back in the 1920s, and um, she has written about and wrote about uh, the importance of women connecting with other women. Just to get to your point about men do things differently, um, women need each other in a, in a way that, um, that is a, it's profound. And when we're together, what we can accomplish is profound, too. So I'm all about it. So you said earlier that um, the bubble hour was a gateway drug for you. And that was actually the title of my very first blog that I wrote for She Recovers um, called Sobriety is a Gateway Drug. And that I thought that would be a good place for us to start um, because it talks about how I found you and how I found She Recovers and kind of how She Recovers works because I have got the best writing gig ever, and um, I now am the blogger for She Recovers after keeping my own um, sober blog for many years. And last year, last year, Don Nickel from um, She Recovers, the founder, co-founder of She Recovers, uh, offered me the you know the opportunity to to write on her platform, and um, it's been so awesome. So this was actually my first my first blog that I wrote, and uh, I think it. I think it's a good place to start. So it started with baby number one. I like a routine, a schedule, and I read that babies do too. So every night at 6.30 p.m., I bathed him in Johnson & Johnson's lavender foaming soap, toweled him off, placed him in footed pajamas, and headed down to the kitchen. I prepared our nightcaps while holding him, carefully balancing his body and my my bottle of Chardonnay, By 7 p.m., we were settled onto the couch with reruns of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Baby with his bottle, me with my glass, Buffy with her big bad. You know how this goes. You know what happens next. Routine became habit. Habit became dependency. Dependency became addiction. It took a decade, but it definitely took. Baby became a teenager. Buffy became the crown. And so I sat on my couch, glass in hand. I shocked myself with my inability to get a handle on it. I started reading the sober blogs. I started my own sober blog. I found the bubble hour and unpickled, and eventually she recovers. I must have looked at the retreat page on the She Recovers website dozens of times. Reasons not to go. Time away, money, fear of people, fear of looking too closely at myself. 
reasons to go. I can't stop wanting sobriety. I can't stop needing clarity. I can't stop drinking. Last spring, after yet another night of broken promises to myself, I booked a spot at the Salt Spring Island Retreat. I did this and did not overthink it. I did this and surprised myself. I did this and went back to the couch. The first thing that happens after you book a She Recovers retreat is you get a very warm email welcome from Don Nickel, founder of She Recovers and the mother, aunt, sister, friend that you've been looking for. The second thing that happens is if you have a Facebook account, you receive an invite to the secret She Recovers retreat group. The community that you find there will finally make Facebook worth your time. A few weeks before the retreat, She Recovers sent me a what to expect informational packet. Along with the daily schedule and a list of what to bring, not to bring, was the retreat intention questionnaire. I had seen this type of thing before and had always quickly discounted the importance of setting my intentions, but not this time. I filled that bitch out, the entire thing, every single question in Calibri red gold. I was not fucking around. Canadians really are as nice as you've heard. Victoria, British Columbia is gorgeous and Salt Spring Island is magical. The, re- the farm where the retreat was held reminded me of a Napa, a Napa Valley vineyard I visited years ago. Apologies for this limited frame of reference. Lush and green with flowers everywhere, the farm is run as a cooperative primarily by women who are raising their families there. You want to meet them. I want to be them. Liz is a kayak tour guide turned farmer whose love for her land is contagious. Haiti is the genius behind the retreat menu, which is almost entirely local, wholly delicious, and beautifully accommodating to various diets. We arrived at the farm in various states of awkwardness, and many of us later admitted to last-minute doubts and thoughts of, what was I thinking? We were each different, and we were each exactly the same. We wore T-shirts and jeans, faded khakis and loose blouses, yoga pants, and workout tops. We were all sizes. We had chipped nails and perfect pedicures. We had no children, and we had grandchildren. We were young and middle-aged and graying. Our our shared commonalities were honesty and openness, and over the course of the next four days, I was continually stunned by how those two ingredients created instant connection and friendship. We expressed our struggles to one another without shame. Addiction, grief, trauma, loss, loneliness. Throw in some of Haiti's gluten-free, dark chocolate chip and lavender cookies, and my entire world cracked open. Each day was loosely structured around two yoga classes, which took place in a large, light-filled studio. Taryn Strong, Dawn's She Recovers partner and daughter, wrapped her long red hair in a loose bun and gently led us back to ourselves. Her classes were unlike anything I had ever encountered inside or outside of a yoga studio. It was yoga mixed with music and poetry and essays and visualizations, all infused with the feminine. I came to love my yoga mat like I love my bed at home. I stared up at the high, high studio ceiling made of clean wooden slats and thought of nothing. I was wide open. I don't know what day it was or if it was the morning or afternoon session, but somewhere right in the middle of one of Taryn's classes, I received what I had come for. And the other women did too. Our arms were up. Our arms were out. We threw down our struggles and let them go. Again and again and again and again. We moved to child's pose and I heard tears hitting yoga mats all around me. Raise your fingers if you need a tissue, Taryn said. I raised my hand. 
The vulnerability was palpable, a little unnerving, and a physical relief. Something had shifted, and I felt very raw and tender after that class. And it left me wanting to speak in soft tones to the other women who now seemed like dear heart friends. Dear heart friends. I thought back to my retreat intention questionnaire where I had written, submit my sobriety through relationships. <laughs> Make a sober friend or two to help keep me accountable. This was my stated intention, and this was the gift that she recovers gave to me. I would not have to do this alone. In the months to come, these women, these new dear heart friends, would save me. They would call me and message me and meet me. They were not going to let me go back to the couch. The shifting I had felt was a new, old, fragile space opening within me. These heart friends had helped me find that opening, and now they are helping me find the courage to widen and grow into it. There is uncertainty and fear and hope and dreams in this new space, and the couch is always there, a big bad that is never quite dead. But for me, the She Recovers retreat was a gateway a gateway to recovery, a gateway to all the things I've been waiting for, a gateway back to myself. You still there? <laughs> I'm still here. I'm hanging on your words <clears throat> and your emotion. So yeah. it's been a while since you wrote that, but it still hits you straight in the heart. It, I, I heard it. Yeah. Tell me about what, what's, yep. what's that about. Um, I was lonely for a really long time. You know, I think that women, I call it siloed and silent. You know, we're just all in our little houses and we're striving to do all the things we do that are meaningful, but um, lack meaning. (laughs) And uh, they certainly, you know, a lot of times lack connection. And for the longest time I was in that. Mm-hmm. So I should, I should say that I am um, a military wife. And um, for the decade that I spoke about there at the beginning, we, we were moving around all the time. And that's when I was having babies. And there was nothing like a move or a new baby to really make you feel alone. And put those two together, and it's, you know, it's <laughs> a special experience in solitude. So um, I was coming out of and, and, and now truly on the other side of a decade of just um, a, lot of, a lot of turmoil and, and a lot of stuffing of emotions because you didn't really, you know, I didn't really have time to process things. We were just constantly moving and what's the next thing and, um, you know, what are my, I would say, what are my five numbers? What's my zip code? Where are we going? I just need my five numbers. And I have a, a game I play with some of my veteran Navy wife friends who are a gift of the universe, if ever there was one, um, how, how long it would take you. If I gave you your five numbers, I'm going to give you your zip code. So how long will it take you to find a house, find a school for your kid, find, you know, an OBGYN, a hairdresser, like, you know, 30 minutes and they can do it. You know, it's an amazing skill serves your family, but it, it takes a toll on you. There was another military wife on that retreat that we were on as well, and she talked about the pressure to be strong and to be 
you know, her family needed her to be strong. Her husband needed her to be strong. And how she just kind of was just withering within, like you say, in her silo of strength and the expectation on her. And and even her own ability to do it was kind of a curse. Like I think in a way, sometimes being strong can be a curse because it stops people from thinking you need help or stops you maybe from reaching out. Is it, would you say that this addiction or isms of some kind, whether it's eating disorders or, you know, the, the, the fellow travelers of addiction that that we all kind of shift back and forth from those other codependent, um, maladaptive um, coping mechanisms. Um, are those rampant among military spouses that are sort of having to be strong on their own? Oh, I, I, well, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to put isms on other people, but I can tell you that um, it's funny because every Veterans Day or um, Memorial Day, you know, there's all these people that post uh, pictures of their grandfather on Facebook and say, oh, my grandfather was in the Navy or he's in the Army. And I'm like, dude, everybody's grandfather was in the Navy or the Army. It was World War II, you know. I mean, everybody, uh, mm-hmm. everybody was in that war mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. one way or the other. And that is not the case now with military with military families, you know, I think we make up 1% of the population or something and tiny, you know, something very tiny and the community is not there in the way that it used to be for the families and the spouses. And, um, it's, it can, it's very, very, it's very trying. Um, and, and you need, you need people that speak a very specific language because your life doesn't look like anybody else's. And, um, and yet, because there's not the community around you, you don't have that, um, you know, that language. Uh, the military speaks an acronym. So I can, say, I can say something to my Navy wife friends that you would never understand. I can say right. something like, you know, David's ship is going into in-serve next month. And they would be horrified and you would have no idea what that meant, but they would instantaneously know that that means my life is going to be hell. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's a language and it's a community that is lacking there, just like it's lacking so many other places. It's funny you say that. My sister is former military and she used to drive us nuts. She was always speaking in in code, we said, you know, because she'd say like, oh, I've got to go do my, I don't know what, you know, pp. 10 or something. <laughs> she like, Wait, I, ha- I have no idea what that means. And so then she'd say what the acronym stood for. And I was like, I still don't know what that is. Like you have to, you know, she'd roll her eyes and explain to me, but she lived in another world. And the other thing that occurs to me as you're saying that is that whenever she was in public in her uniform, I'm, I'm Canadian, things are a little bit different up here. Um, our military is, I mean, we're, we're, we're a smaller population and much more spread out, and we have a much smaller military. But nevertheless, whenever she was in public in her uniform, um, people would thank her for her service. And it occurs to me as you um, are telling your story that, you know, I'm sure your husband has that experience, but no one, like the wives or the families, the the other side of that support is, invisible. No one comes up to you at the grocery store and knows to thank you for your service or, you know, gives you that recognition for it. It's just, it's expected as part of your life. That must feel a little bit tiring sometimes too. 
Well, we could have a whole other conversation. About yeah. Okay. We're going down another track here. <laughs> I suppose about isolation, how, yeah. it, it's all yeah, about isolation sorry. and, and, mm-hmm. um, and addiction wants us isolated. And I, mm-hmm. I suppose my, my point is that someone who's already isolated is a prime target. Um, I think of, um, I hear a lot from women who are divorced and have, uh, you know, shared custody with their children, and it's their weekends alone when their children are with the other caregiver that they that they find can be extremely difficult. And, you know, that's where Wolfie goes. That's where the big bad goes. And um, uh, sometimes we create isolation through different ways. So, um, no, that's so true. That's, that's absolutely true. And I, I wonder if, you know, things would have if my drinking would have gotten out of control, if our lifestyle wasn't out of control, um, I'll never know. And I'm, I'm very, of course, you know, I'll qualify everything with, I'm very proud of my husband and, you know, he's, he's, he just celebrated 30 years in the Navy. So I, it's, it's a, it was a sacrifice for our family. So I'll never, and I'll never know what, what the other side could have looked like, but I, I do wonder if, um, you know, if things weren't, quite so drastically lonely that maybe things would have turned out a little bit different. But I'm well, so I'll tell glad, you what. actually, Jean, because I get to hang out with you. I'm so glad it worked yeah. out. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> this is true. And here, here's going to be my, here's my observation based on um, the amount of, short amount of time I've spent with you. I predict that uh, you would have found a way regardless. <laughs> you would have found a way to make your life complicated and isolated. You would have been like, you know, running at the, at the front no matter what, yeah. and exhausting yourself. And, cause, uh, you know, that's I think how my mother and support. my father would agree with you. They would say that that's <laughs> probably spot on. <laughs> Tell me more about yourself. You had another piece that you felt really spoke to your story um, that you wanted to share. Do you want to read some more for us? Sure, sure. So I, um, what I found in my writing as I, as I have uh, looked back on what I have been writing on, on the She Recovers website and certainly what I find myself thinking about all the time. I'm sort of obsessed with um, my place and time. So I come from a huge Irish Catholic family and there's, you know, a lot of um, addiction is absolutely a part of our family's history. And, and I want it to be history. I don't want it to be what's coming, you know, and I have two boys. Um, They are 13 and 14 and I would love to, draw a line in the sand between them and this and say, you know, no more. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, free will is free will. And whoever came up with that concept really is just the worst because now that I have children, I don't want them to have free will. I want to be in complete control of them all the time. <laughs> and it's terrible. I know. And my, my oldest son's always like, mom, why are you always so worried about security? Because, of course, I'm like, put your helmet on and make sure you don't, you know, cross the street without checking three times. And I drive them insane. I drive them insane with trying to keep them safe. But this is one of the things I would love to be able to keep them safe from. And, of course, I, I'm, you know, I'm probably, it's up to them. It's up to them. So, but I, I want to be able to say, I want to be able to talk about it with them really honestly and, and in a knowledgeable way. Um, to at least give them the tools and the language. And if they want to use them, great. And if, and if they don't need to use them, even better. Um, but I want to be able to say I did my job as best as I could. 
Well, that's absolutely, you know, wanting to be a good mother behind my desire to stop drinking above and beyond any other reason. And I was looking through, as I was getting ready for our, our call today, I was looking through some of my old blogs from my, my own personal blog that is private now, but um, I can still see the posts. And the second post um, that I ever wrote, I quoted Anna Quinlan, who also doesn't drink. And she says, um, my mother was a drunk is one of the harshest, saddest sentences in any language. And I was not going to be that. I just wasn't. Mm-hmm. And so I, <clears throat> I kind of, um, I just wasn't going to do that. So that's what I, I my, most, my, most, my most recent blog is about, um, it's about that sort of, and, it, and, uh, and it's called, <laughs> it's called Moving Beyond Botox and Religion. I recently heard a theory about how we each live in a 200-year span of history, You mark the beginning of your span, your 200-year present, by thinking of the oldest person who could have held you as a baby, my great-grandmother born in 1900. You mark your span's end by estimating the potential lifespan of the youngest person in your extended family that you have held, my three-year-old nephew. I estimate that my 200-year present is actually 215 years, from 1900 to 2115. This concept has helped me understand my role and my impact within my family and the greater world. Six weeks ago, I got Botox for the first time. I've always had good skin, a genetic gift found in my ancestry goodie bag nestled between debilitating anxiety and alcoholic tendencies. It's a mixed bag for sure. But gravity, sun damage, and pharmaceutical marketing are powerful forces, so after years of trying to convince myself that I should love my last lines and complaining about how our culture doesn't value age, especially in women, I swallowed all my feminist I swallowed all my feminist sentiments and shot my face up with botulism. Of course it worked. I love it. This is the world I live in, the world that we live in, a world of unceasing contradictions and tension. Some days I want to save the world, and some days I want to buy a pretty pair of shoes. But what I never ever want to do, be in the world. Accept it, love it, and be content with what it is. For 45 years of my 215-year span, I have worked to control and arrange things, to be successful in this culture of more that is our current collective reality. Powered by a high-octane fuel of anxiety and fear, I got quite a bit done. Degrees, marriage, house, babies, jobs, my list has a lot of checked boxes. But the fuel of anxiety and fear was eating me up and my alcoholic tendencies were flourishing. I stopped drinking, but cannot seem to stop trying to control and arrange things. My mind buzzes with thoughts of what might lie ahead. How do I adequately prepare myself and my family for the future? How do I make make preparations? How do I get things done without my toxic fuel? Botox is like a shot of tequila for my face. It artificially and temporarily smoothed out my external edges, but now my outsides most definitely do not match my insides. My face displays a false calm while my mind continues to buzz. Serenity eludes me. My great-grandmother converted to Catholicism as a teenager. Seeking serenity from her own century's demons, she found it sitting in the back of a neighborhood church while she waited for friends to finish their weekly confessions. Converting 
converting to Catholicism against her family's wishes was a radical act of self-care and a defining moment within her 200-year span. And I know that this act sustained her throughout her long life because whenever she held me and my many cousins, she also held her rosary. This is the 117th year of my 215-year present, and I am painfully aware of my place and time and what is passed from generation to generation. I want to pass down a key to contentment, but where do I buy that? Organized religion holds as much appeal for me as botulism injections may have held for my great-grandmother, and it is not lost on me that both of them, organized religion and Botox, are part of a patriarchal structure that crosses way too many generational spans. They can be trappings and traps, distractions from the truth of our own worthiness, our own beauty. At the heart of what has been passed down to me, and what I hope my own great-granddaughter recognizes early in her life, is that the unyielding search for serenity is our common gift, passed down from many, many grandmothers. And along with this gift comes an understanding that while we are in the world, we are not of the world. These truths and making our peace with them allow us to just be in the world, accept it, love it, and be content with what it is. I love that piece. (laughs) (laughs) I love it because you and I had this big talk about Botox. Yes, we Uh, did. (laughs) (laughs) And um, when you were thinking about it, and like I never told anybody really that I had Botox because I also really value, I love getting older. I love watching my face droop. <laughs> I like I love finding out who I'm who I'm going to become, but I looked so grumpy with this frown line and so I was getting that frozen because I told the doctor like don't put it anywhere else. I don't I don't I don't mind looking old, but I don't want to look grumpy. And so you and I had this big chat about, you know, my selective use of Botox. <laughs> and it was so freeing because I I really never told anybody about it. <clears throat> and I have to tell you that after that, uh, the next time I was getting it, my husband was like, where are you going today? And I had Botox longer than I'd been sober, and he didn't know. And I just blurted out to him, I'm getting Botox. <laughs> I was like almost crying. I was like, I can't keep this inside anymore. I need you to know my secrets. <laughs> he just cracked up laughing. So when I read that you had like blogged about it, I just thought, oh my God, I love the, I love the freedom of telling the truth and not being yeah. scared or ashamed of it. Um, but further so to that. In, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, you, you were think? in the room with me when I got Botox because I was remembering our conversation. Very, and I said to her, I'm like, look, my friend Jean says, I don't want to look like Spock from Star, from Star Trek. And I just don't want to look grumpy. So I quoted you to the doctor as she was putting Right. Don't put it, it's like, don't make my eyebrows touch my hairline. I don't want right? that. <laughs> I don't want to look shocked, even though I kind of am shocked a lot of the time. I don't want to look like that. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, but beyond beyond the the fun of talking about these things, I love though what you say about the false calm because I I've I've also felt that too is that um the, well 
the symbolism of it isn't lost on me, and I love how you how you represented that and juxtaposed it against your grandmother and and um, oh, this is so. I love your writing. Um, there's a handful of recovery writers who just really shoot arrows in my heart to the point where I can hardly read them. You're one of them. Um, Christy Coulter and um, Laura McCowan, also amazing writers. I mean, there's so many good bloggers and truth tellers out there. But there's something about each of your writings that almost makes me want to just like throw my pen down and be like, I quit. I can't write this book. I can't. I'm not writing anymore. I'm done. These guys are too good. (laughs) Well, thank you. Thank you for placing me in such great company. But I have to say, you know, you're, you know, I, so I will tell the listeners that I um, used to be in radio and for many, many, many years I produced um, a, a daily radio show on the National Public Radio affiliate where I live. And I, um, I had been wanting to interview you for all these years. And so Jean has told me, listeners, that I can't interview her <laughs> during this hour that she's interviewing me. But one of these days, Jean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you uh, give me an hour so I can just ask you all the questions that I want to ask. And, of course, the book, one of those great questions, because um, we talked about it when we were in Mexico. And um, what I loved, what I took away most from what we discussed was how your brain becomes preoccupied with the writing of it and the characters that present themselves to you and they kind of follow you around and nip at your heels and they write, they kind you can't stop thinking about them. They want to be written by you. I'm obsessed. It's like I'm, I'm obsessed or possessed. I'm not sure which, but they are always chattering at me always. And it's like, they're almost like ghosts that won't go away until I tell their story. And, um, and it's it's an amazing process. It truly is. Uh, I don't know if anyone will read this book or like this book, but it's in me and it's got to come out. It's a, it's an amazing process. Writing a book is... I'm writing fiction, um, I should say. I started out trying to write a book about recovery, some kind of a handbook. It just... None of it... I just felt like a fraud because I am more of a storyteller than a researcher, and I'm not an expert. And so I decided to put what I knew into a story, and but set it back in history so that it was. I really wanted to show people that this has been happening for a long time. This isolation and expectations and resentment and mental illness and misunderstanding and all of that and how it resonates for generations. And anyway, it's it's an amazing process and. I love doing it. But so you're again, obsessed with generations too. Well, I am. I really what you wrote about the time our time span was really profound. I'd never heard that before and it really got me thinking about that. And I'd have to say that's for me one of the most powerful motivators for sobriety really is the effect on my children, my sons, their wives and my grandchildren. And the matriarch, you know, I I think I when you're a busy young mom, you're like you're you're like a worker bee, a worker ant, but you don't feel like a matriarch. I think in, I didn't anyway until my kids got older and left home, and I sort of shifted from being their caregiver to sort of being more of a lighthouse. Like as a mom, you're when you get older, you're more of a lighthouse. Does that make sense? Yes, you're it like, does. They only look to you when they need you, but they need you to always be there, and they need to know that you're always going to be this sort of steady, consistent thing. 
and I wanted to be like consistently good and not consistently um, self-doubting and all of that. And sorry, it's emotional. <laughs> it is. No, I mean there's a lot at stake. Yeah, yeah. Stake with what we're doing, and it's um, and it's you know it's a reason that I think a lot of, and now I'm gonna I'm I'm gonna pull from relationships and um, experiences of, of other women because I love to learn a lesson from somebody else's shit show. <laughs> you know, like I don't need, I don't need to put my hand on the oven to know that it's hot. If you've told me it's hot. So, um, but I, what I see is that uh, it is, there is a lot at stake and haha, it's a sobering reality. <laughs> and, um, and when you're caught in a cycle of shame, and you come out of it enough to um, see what's, what's going on, right, and how much work it's going to require of you to fix it, and that maybe you won't be able to fix it, but, you, you know, it's so much easier to just grab your cocktail and go back to the couch. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Because there is, there, you know, there's a lot on the line. Yeah, there is. And sometimes we just, I think I feel defeated sometimes. Not defeated, um almost unworthy or a little bit of an imposter. Like I wanted to ask you about this because I find this in that people know me through being a host on, on this show and through my writing. And those to me are sort of refined versions of my voice. I always worry that when people meet me in person, they're, I'm not edited. I'm not, um, you know, when I write, I can go back and fix, things until they say it the way I want it to be said, but I don't speak as well as that. And, um, and when I'm hosting the bubble hour, I'm not talking about myself so much. So I, I feel like I'm sort of communicating from a different part of my brain, but when I'm in front of people, God knows what's going to come out of my mouth. Do you ever <laughs> fear the disconnect between your writing voice, like your, your creative voice versus yourself in person do you feel imposter syndrome creep into that oh my gosh I live in imposter syndrome I live I live in it it is you'll remember when we were with the way she recovers retreats work she recovers retreat works is that um, on a few of the evenings throughout the week or the you know few few days that you're together you have a sharing circle and everybody kind of goes around and um introduces themselves and just says, if, you know, says a little bit about maybe what's on their heart or why they're there or what they're struggling with. Or, and you'll remember when I, um, when it was my turn the first night in Mexico, I read one of my posts because of that, because (laughs) I, I am so worried that I won't be able to articulate in the way that I, in this like perfect way, right. This thoughtful kind of, um, <laughs> a moment happening just like right now. <laughs> my, words, my words escape me and I, I can't do them justice. I can't do my, my experiences and my thoughts justice through my words. So I absolutely live in imposter syndrome. And it's interesting that you would say that because use that as a particular phrase. Um, because when, uh, when, I, when I left uh, the retreat that I wrote about and the first post that I just read, when I left that retreat, Um, so I've been at this, I've been at recovery and trying to get, um, a steady recovery since 2013. And, uh, it's a long time. 
And of course, there was a decade before that where I knew I, you know, the more and more that there was signs that this was a problem. But I've been um, actively trying to get on top of this for five years, and I would have long stretches where it would I would be successful. But like I said at the at the very beginning. I, because I was playing it small and I was trying to be quiet about things and I kept saying, and it's funny, again, going back to my old blog, I mean, I would write about how I would say, you know, nothing to see here, nothing's going on, everything's fine, I'm totally under control. Of course, I wasn't, and we aren't, <laughs> but we just don't want to be a mess, you know? We just don't want to be seen, um, but we're so desperate to be seen at the same time. Anyway, so when I... <clears throat> I I had had long stretches, but I didn't have people. I needed the people. And I went to the retreat and I found the people, you know, so all these women that look like me and they talk like me and they have lives like me and they have problems like me and they have this one specific problem like I did. And that was so great and so empowering. And then I came home and I drank again. (laughs) I was still needed, I still needed something more. And so what happened was after um, two weeks of, you know, sitting on my couch again, I, I called Don Nickel and thank God I had somebody to call. And I had never, ever asked for help, ever. I had never really been honest, certainly in conversations with the women in Canada last year, I was honest in those conversations, but I had never said, I need help. Um, and so I called Don on one Saturday morning and I said, I am really sorry to tell you that I'm not, I am not in a good place and I can't seem to pull myself out of it again. And this time it feels really, it feels deeper than it had before. And, um, and you know, the thing about Don is that she holds space for you in the most beautiful way. And, you know, I try to be so succinct in my, in my storytelling because people are busy, you know, so make your sentences count. And so I kind of rushed through my story and told her where I was. And I said, okay, so that's what's going on with me. What's going on with you? And, you know, she was like, well, let me, let me stick with you for a minute here. And she asked me some more questions and she just wasn't going to let me get off the phone. And she gave me what I have come to call like my three point plan, which she says, she said that was not, she didn't construct it that way and sort of hand it to me in that neat fashion, but that's how I heard it. And um, the number one thing she said I needed to do was to sit my husband down and get him involved with what was going on with me because he still did not know. I still had never been honest with him. I told him I was going on a yoga retreat to Canada and I don't really <laughs> do yoga all that much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And God love him, you know, he just wants me to be happy. He's like, okay, that sounds fun. I don't know. I didn't realize you were that into yoga. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm totally into yoga. No, I wasn't. <laughs> so he didn't Not know you were, you had quit drinking or were trying to quit drinking. Did he know he you were seen, drinking? Um, he, he had seen me. He did not think I had a problem. So I was really good at hiding and, mm-hmm. um, and frankly, he's really good at not seeing things if he doesn't want to. So, sure. and he would, he would tell you that. So now, you know, after we've been really honest with each other since last year about this kind of thing. So, um, so I sat David down. So the three point plan was, you know, get David involved. Um, 
get more sober people in your life. And, you know, I, I'm a consultant and I work for myself and, and I work for myself. So it's another place to be lonely. Right. And another place to not feel like, I mean, that was where I embodied the imposter syndrome all the time where, mm-hmm. you know, you walk into these meetings and you need to be, you know, presenting a certain kind of persona and a certain, certain kind of certitude. And that's a lot of pressure. So Don said, you know, you need to figure out a different, something different at work so that you're not constantly stressed out and anxious that they're going to quote unquote find you out. So that was the three point plan. So I sat David down that morning and said, I need you to see me. Like I have been, I have been drunk the past five nights. And he's like, no, you haven't. I've been sitting on the couch right next to you. (laughs) I'm like, dude, (laughs) I, you're not looking in my cup. You know, you are not seeing me. And he wasn't, he wasn't, you know, my, I married a really, really good man and he just wasn't seeing me. And it was not, it's not that he didn't love me. And and you and I have talked about this since Mexico, but, um, you know, last summer when I was with all these wonderful women in Canada, I certainly heard my story and I, I, it was wonderful and powerful, but there weren't a lot of strong, there weren't, I did not encounter and make friendships with women who relationships at that time were solid. And so it, I, it kind of fed this question I had about, you know, why is he, why is he not saying anything? Does, you know, is it not a problem? Is it because he doesn't love me? Like what, what is going on with this particular part of my story that, my husband is not seeing what is right in front of his face. And, um, and it's not fair to have put all that on him. But anyway, that's kind of how my thinking was going. And in Mexico, what I, what I found were a number of women whose marriages reflected my marriage. So Canada, your story reflects my story. And in Mexico, it was your marriage looks like my marriage, which is it's a good guy. He didn't want to see it. It doesn't mean he's it doesn't mean there's something profoundly wrong in the marriage. Um, certainly you need to have some more honest conversations, but, um, you know, there was, I, it was, it was a relief to me and it was inspiring to me that that could also be part of a truth. Did you fear that your recovery might mean the end of your marriage? I feared that at the beginning. Mine. No, I, I did not, I did not have that concern. I, he did not, you know, we have, a, we had a really good time going out. I mean, we, he's not a huge drinker, but you know, we would go out and like when the kids were away at camp or whatever, we would certainly go out and have a good time and vacations, you know, were you'd have wine and I mean, it was, we would have a good time drinking together in a, in a very quote unquote normal way. And he misses that. And, um, I did not, I did not have a concern that it would, that my not drinking was going to cause us to, to end. But I guess I did feel at some point that my recovery might, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In that because you changed grow. so much. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I know I worried about that too. And um, because for me, I knew I had to quit drinking or die. Like, and not because I was at death's door, but because that's where it takes us. 
I mean, that is absolutely where it takes you. And then, and before you die, your life goes to hell. Like, it's just awful. And I just didn't want to go there. But I was like, man, if he's not on board, like, I don't have a choice. I have to do this. Um, mm-hmm. But like you say, it turned out I was married to a good man who, mm-hmm. you know, I, I wasn't giving him enough credit because I think I was so isolated in my addiction. I I was mad that he wasn't seeing me, but by the same token, I wasn't seeing him. Um, oh, my gosh, that's about, so true, James. Yeah, mm-hmm. right? We we underestimate their capacity at the same time as maybe they're overestimating ours. We talked a little bit about this, and I know I know you asked if we could touch on this, but I just have found that being sober, as it turns out, has made me such a better spouse because I'm so much more able to receive the love that I'm given. I couldn't receive it before. I honestly, honestly thought I didn't deserve it, that they were mistaken, and that my family was going to, you know, this is part of imposter syndrome, they were going to realize I wasn't lovable and they were just all going to, you know, act on that truth and and abandon me. And I was shocked when I realized that was really what I thought. Um, And now that I don't believe that anymore, wow, I'm... I'm a way better partner. I'm way, everything's better. I mean, our private life is better. Our fun together is better. And even though I think my husband sort of misses the easiness of, you know, going to a concert and having a drink together or whatever, he sort of has to, because he's a normie, he compartmentalizes that part of his life now. He goes out for a beer on a fairly regular, like, Mondays at 3, he meets his friend Nick. <laughs> Wednesdays. <laughs> Wednesdays at 2, he has a tea time with his friend Brad, and then they go, uh-huh. I call it their bro date, they go for a, a drink and a pizza afterwards. And then, you know, then he comes home because he, that's what normal people do. But he compartmentalizes that part of his life now, and I'm not, I'm not in it anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's a bit of a sacrifice on his part, but everything else we do together is just so great. And honestly, like, I feel like, I don't know. I'm 50. I've been married for 28 years. Oh, I'm 51. Married for 28 years. And (laughs) and this is the, like, you know, you think newlywed stage is like the happiest, most romantic time of your life. But honestly, this is like, my body is getting lumpy and droopy and weird. And like, you know, we're getting old and saggy. It's like, everything is Not our faces. Our faces are solidly frozen. (laughs) (laughs) Just one little part. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, but. our marriage is much, I'll tell you, it is, it is, there's an easiness to it that has never been there. We've been married 20 years too, uh, 20 years, and there's an easiness to our marriage now, and there's a joy in my house that absolutely has never been there before. Yeah. It's an honesty. It's really what it is. It's just, it's just, there's not this, well, and, and you know what? We don't move around anymore. Like, he doesn't, we just don't move uh, because of where he is in his career. And so um, I, although, although ironically, you know, he's, I would love to move now, now that we're so solid and I can enjoy the places that, I mean, we, we always lived in beautiful, beautiful, wonderful places and I was miserable in so many of them. I would love to go back and have a redo at, you know, Italy or Monterey. Yeah. Imagine that because those are amazing places and, your head was down when you were there, right? Yeah. You were just mm-hmm. you were in survival mode. Um, 
we are we're running short on time and there's a I feel like we glossed over a little bit about the fact that you went home from a recovery retreat full of sober women and relapsed. So I want to go back to that just briefly and tell me about that. How did that happen? What was what was going on for you that that let that happen or that set the stage for that? I think that like I said I think I needed to loop David in. I think that that, I think I came home to a house that was not, I mean, when you're on a retreat, it's, it's, it is, it's it, like, a, it's honesty and there's a joy to that honesty. And there is just, it is just refreshingly, I think I wrote recently on our Facebook page, you know, I can't wait to, to go back to Canada because we don't do small talk. I think small talk is like deadly. Small talk is what <laughs> kills us. You know, I mean, it's exhausting. So I sort of okay. Wait, let's I can't. let's play act that. Hey, Erin, okay. how are you? I'm fine. Hey. Oh, good. Oh, me too. What's new? Well, I'm on a pod. I'm on a podcast with Jean, and we're talking about recovery. <laughs> <laughs> That's the not small talk. <laughs> this is what I'm capable of. Now. I can ruin a cocktail party faster than anybody because I'm like, I'll say, "Hey, what's going on, Jean?" And you'll say. Okay, let's we'll reverse the roles. Okay. Okay. Hey, Jean, what's going on? Oh, not so much. How about you? What's new? I don't know. I don't know how my marriage is. How's your marriage doing? <laughs> See, I ruin it. <laughs> you do not play by the rules at all. No. <laughs> do people so kind of white slap around you? <laughs> yes. You really like people. I'm not. I'm not invited to anything. <laughs> Our calendar and David has David has mentioned this like our calendar is really empty lately because I just I got nothing for nobody. If you don't have brutal honesty for me, I got nothing for you. Oh well, I love that. That's hilarious. You remind me of Glennon uh, Doyle when she wrote, you know, talked about her piece about it took her a stint in the mental hospital where she was like, okay, this is where the truth tellers are. This is these are my people. There's no small talk here. This is where we're telling the truth. And we crave it. I mean, I just, that's why I I knew when I got Botox, I was like, I'm going to have to tell the world because I, I'm just not going to walk around with even that as a secret anymore. Because it's killing us, you know, the, the not being honest about what, what we're living in. You know, I ran into into an old friend who, um, she's a nurse. And I hadn't seen her since before I had kids. So the first thing she wanted to know was like, well, how big were your kids and how did the birth go? And, you know, so I told her that my babies were all like close to 10 pounds. And her first question was like, ooh, how are your bowel movements? (laughs) (laughs) She's my best friend. I haven't seen you in 20 years. I'm not quite ready to go there. But she she persisted, you know, and we we got back to it. But anyway, so you're that kind of friend. We all need one of you yes. in my life. Yes. Um, yeah. I, well, that's nice. I, I, I do love, I do love that. Um, the friends I have are, that's where they are too. Yeah. You know, they, they want that kind of honesty. Right. And you know, when you're, you know, we can all play nice. We can all put our social game face on and, and play the game, but you you just can't live there. Right. You, you, you now need, know you need to live in, truthful, honest, raw relationships that feed your yeah. 
insatiable mm-hmm. need to know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, I do. Um, you had a funny story. So before we go, I want to circle back. I, I neglected in my long rambling intro about how amazing it is how we met. I sort of glossed over, maybe neglected to mention that um, you are the um, editor-in-chief and lead blogger at She Recovers. And I love this community so much. I know I talk a lot about it on the show because for me, it's my primary access to meeting other people in recovery. So um, if listeners are sort of like wondering why I'm always obsessed with this community, it's my place. It's it's where I meet my people. And, um, and you went from writing a private blog that was like really good and um is is you've made it private so it's it's not out there for public consumption anymore but but don um invited you as blogger chief blogger to editor managing editor contributing editor and and head blogger at um she recovers and your work there is amazing but you told me the funniest story about when you first started, I don't know if you know what I'm getting at, but it took you a while to realize um, (laughs) your audience size. So tell us about that. It did. So, so like I said, I, um, so I, I stalked She Recovers on their website for a really long time, looking at the retreat page. And last year, of course, they, they had their first conference, and they had Glennon Doyle on, who I actually didn't know about at the time, um, but they had Elizabeth Vargas, and they had Marianne Williamson, who, of course, I knew both of those. Uh, they've been around quite a bit long, quite a lot bit of time. And so what happened was, um, okay, so I was, I was looking at the retreat page, and then they put the conference stuff up, and then I was, you know, vacillating about whether I should go. By the time I decided I wanted to go, it was sold out. So then I went to the, you know, then I was like, okay, well, I, I guess because they, when they put together that conference, like I said, I used to produce a show. So I have high expectations of guests and what your lineup is. And when I saw that lineup, I was like, holy crap, you know, she, she recovers as legit. So I hurriedly booked retreat and um, went on the retreat and I never, ever thought to look at their Facebook page. It never even occurred to me because I have a love-hate, mostly hate relationship with social media. And so I, it just never, ever occurred to me. But then, like I said in my, in my writing, you get invited to the secret Facebook page that has about, I don't know, 270 women in it. And so when Dawn asked me if I would write their blog, I thought that's who I was writing to, 270 people that were on this little Facebook page. And... <laughs> about, I mean, almost right away when I, uh, Don said, okay, well, I'll post your blog. So I posted the blog on the website, but then she said, okay, I'll put it out on Facebook. And, and she did. And almost right away, I got a private message from a girl, I, another Navy wife, who I hadn't seen in like 18 years. And she said, it's so great how open you are about your recovery. And I, I just like, lost my breath. Uh, I'm like, how, how does she know? Because I looked, you know, at the women on this little page and she wasn't there. And I, I'm like, how could she have found me? And I said, well, how did you find me? And she said, oh, it's on Facebook. Well, Don Nickel and Taryn Strong have a Facebook page for She Recovers that has what, 250,000 people? <laughs> <laughs> a quarter of a million. <laughs> a 
quarter of a and million. And Dean, I, I had no idea. I had no idea what, I had no idea what I had been given when Don offered me this, that I would have such an amazing platform to share, you know, my writing. And I'm so, so, so grateful. Um, but yeah, I had absolutely no idea what, <laughs> what was happening with the numbers. That just cracks me up. But, you know, I think ignorance is bliss because maybe believing you were talking to a smaller group allowed you to open up and be more vulnerable and write from a really different place than you might have had you known. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and you and I talked about, have talked about this. It's just, I'm tiptoeing into being more and more public. Certainly this is, you know, going to, I'm, I'm walking straight in now, not so much tiptoeing, but um, I... I think it is good, you know, obliviousness is, is a gift sometimes, and I am glad that I didn't know, but I am so glad for it. And um, I, I think that when I saw you post your picture on Unpickled and put your name on it, that, you know, shifted something really profound in me. And it is absolutely my intention to move in that direction and, and just be like, hello world, this is, and ironically, it's that imposter syndrome around work, you know, I mean, I, I'm a consultant, and I, I am sensitive to that reputation, um, but at the same time, screw it, right, I mean, I know, I know how much good it does when everybody puts their, their name in their face on, on their work, so that is absolutely going to happen here in the next few months. I think that's really exciting. I know when I did it, I really didn't do it for me so much as knowing how I scrutinized, you know, whenever I saw a picture of someone, stranger, public person who was sober, I just wanted to just look at their picture. Like I just stared at it looking for similarities or looking for, I don't know, clues or something. And, And anyone I saw who looked remotely happy which most of us are, because, <laughs> you know, we're not drunk anymore. Um, it gave me hope, and and I saw something of myself, you know, in someone else's eyes. And so I thought, well, I certainly didn't need the validation or the – I didn't want the publicity. I didn't welcome it, but I did it as an act of service, and it had, it, it was one of the single most terrifying, powerful moments of the whole – seven-year trajectory of this thing for me was just opening myself up like that. And, I, and of course, I had no idea of those moments that it would create for other people. So when I hear that now, it really tells me that my instincts were good and to trust my gut because what I hoped would happen with it did happen. And mm-hmm. my fear was that it would be used against me, which it never has been to my knowledge, and that people you know, in my community might you know, be titillated and whisper about it. And if they did, like, oh, well, you know, it's like Mm -hmm. flipping through a People magazine or something. You know, we're looking for gossip. We're looking for distraction. If I was somebody's, you know, momentary whatever that day, um, I think that's a small price to pay for the fact that it helped lots of people. And it's really free. It's really free. Yes, yes. So that's the next place I'm, I'm going and you can wow. see my picture. My picture is on the blog at the very bottom. So there you are. There I am. Yeah. <laughs> what it's worth. See your cute little, your cute little face is there. So mm-hmm. as we wind down uh, our time together, I guess I should let listeners know uh, 
that they can read the blogs you read today as well as many other amazing posts and contributors from other people at sherecovers.co, and there's a link there for the blog. Um, Also, if you follow the She Recovers Facebook page, uh, joining hundreds of thousands of other brilliant followers, um, you'll see posts about new blog posts as well as other information, including the meetups that we've talked about. And um, I'm going to be in L.A. Are you going to L.A., Erin? I am going to L.A. I'm super excited. Mm-hmm. Okay, so we're posting this in July 2018 is when we're having this conversation. And there are, at this moment, there are still a few tickets left for L.A., which you could find on the SheRecovers.co page. And so that's a, that is another amazing um, connection point for women. It's going to be a three-day event, and the speakers, again, are phenomenal. Uh, Cheryl Strayed and who else is there? Help Janet, me remember. Got, yeah, Janet Mock. Mackenzie Phillips, um, Sarah Blondin, who does such great meditations, is, is going to be there. She's Don and Taryn have just created an amazing lineup. Again, as somebody who's like a lineup snob, I am totally impressed because it turns it's out she recovers yeah. is legit. <laughs> and then beyond that, what I mean, the speakers are great, but the other thing that happens is just just this collection of women and it's so welcoming. Everybody's just chatting with each other and there's just such a sisterhood. It's really cool. Lots of people travel to it on their own. They're they're actually having a special event on Friday night for people that are traveling alone, like a come and meet more people kind of event. I'm hosting, um, I'm moderating two panels um, talking about different um, recovery modalities and and one of them is called we're all recovering from something because not everyone is there for sobriety um people are there for all kinds of different isms and ever coming back from all kinds of different setbacks in their life so yeah it's a, yeah it's that's a great the place thing i love about she recovers is that it's not just about drinking and so much of in another conversation i would love to talk with you more about that part of she recovers because it's it's a connection for women of who are facing all sorts of difficulties and recovering from all sorts of situations. And the other thing I wanted to mention about She Recovers is that if you don't want to be on the public-facing She She Recovers Facebook page, like I apparently did not, there is a secret Facebook page that um, Don gave me permission to to share, and it's called called She Recovers Together. And to find it, you you friend Dorothy Ray, R-A-E. Uh, so if you friend Dorothy Ray on Facebook, um, Don will get back to you, and and you can join that or that site, um, that community, which is wonderful, and uh, it it's it's a place where everybody's not, no one's doing small talk on that page. Everybody's doing big talk on that page. Yeah, it's really good, and it's a secret page. So when you're on it, you know, you, anything you post and share there isn't isn't um, seen by other people on Facebook. Only members of the group can see it. So. It's a it's a nice place to sort of observe and connect, and you can be vulnerable there and not worry about other people seeing it. So that's yes, really, exactly. It's a great space. Um, yeah. Okay. Where the clock is just ticking down on me, and we have a lot more to talk about. So I think we should do another chat sometime soon, and um, you can interview me. How about that? Oh, I love that so much. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I'm that interesting, but I just feel like you'll ask really good questions. So, <laughs> Yeah, I'm going to look forward to that. Thanks. 
Oh, great. Okay, well, any final words to our listeners before you go, Erin? Um, there is a, a post that I wrote that I, I hope maybe if you're, if you're thinking that, you know, maybe alcohol, is, maybe you're not as bad as you think you are or you don't really need to stop or you're wrestling with that, there is a post I wrote called It Takes What It Takes. And I, I, like, I like it because it really, it, you know, we're, we, have, we all are in this, there's a time, um, there's a time in your drinking experience where um, I call it the rock bottom years, but uh, we have a mutual friend who calls it the research years where you just decide to try things like you're not ready yet to say um, I'm done forever. And, and I just was, I just hope that people that are, you know, women who are listening to this and still wrestling with whether this applies to them or how bad they are, or I'm not that, I'm not that bad. Like, you know, there's, you can stay in the research years a really long time. And, and they're just, it's not worthy of you to stay there. Like, it's so much better to just say, okay, I'm going to move into the next thing because this is not worthy of me and I'm worth more. And, you know, I find it's easier. Abstinence is easier than trying to moderate. It just frees you mm-hmm. up to do other things. Yes. And um, yes. It's, it's funny. It's the scariest part of it is people are afraid to move from research to action. And to me, action is 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 giving up alcohol and changing your relationship with it. But, yeah, I love that. I love that. It's not worthy of you to stay there. Your, your heart's calling you to more, right? Absolutely. I mean, our story is such a great example. Like, just let it go, and you will, you will be amazed. And it's, I know it's kind of a cliche to say it, but I think this conversation is a great example that it absolutely works exactly in that way. Just let it go, and then you'll you'll be blown away by what happens next mm-hmm. in a good way, in a good way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here. And Erin's um, work can be read on sherecovers.co. You can read my story on unpickledblog.com. If you would like to send a message to Erin, you can either send it to her through the She Recovers page or you can email me, thebubblehour at gmail.com, and I will forward your message on to Erin. And I guess that's it for us today. I'm going to play the closing music before we totally run out of time. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank Aaron for being here. That's it for the Bubble Hour. Until next time, everyone, take good care. Thank you so much, Jane. Thank you. Thanks, Aaron. I own it. I did that. Not proud, but that was me. And when I face a little dignity, not looking for excuses. I just want to be free from power, weakness head on me. In a dark corner is where shame lies behind. We think you're strong just cause you keep it on the side. Rob you of your pride Turn the light on, turn the light on You can shine When you see I did Not proud that that was me And when I face it I take back A little bit
Just want to be free. 